Hello and welcome back to the Peerless Review. My name is Kira. My name is Brina. And we talk about the science behind the shit you care about. And this week we're talking about what it means to be clumsy, what that means in your brain and in the effects on your life. Yeah, we're going to talk about a variety of aspects to this. So we're going to talk a lot about something called dyspraxia, which we'll get into in a little bit. Um, And we're also going to talk a little bit about sports and practice and kind of clumsiness in general. So I thought of the idea for this episode because I was at a cookout, I guess, like a a barbecue the other day with some of my friends and we were playing Frisbee and I threw the Frisbee right at the house and I like made the hugest noise. And in that moment, I was taken right back to like fifth grade PE and how I never knew what was going on I feel like honestly I've always been so bad at sports especially team sports I get that but you played uh you played soccer in high school didn't you I did and my friends who played with me we have like a lot of shared drama I feel like because we loved it so much and we loved social aspect and the exercise aspect but I was never that I was never good enough you know I was never on varsity it was constantly a source of like stress I understand that I don't necessarily have a similar experience with sports but I do have a vivid memory of like eighth grade gym class they made us do a fucking juggling unit I don't know if you remember this we did go to the same middle school and I I'm normally like pretty at least decent I'm not horrible at most sports depending um but juggling I have never gotten a worse grade in PE in my life I just like my brain could not figure that shit out exactly you tell your brain I'm gonna do this like this is what we're gonna do and then it like you just don't and for someone I've always preferred like tests and applied knowledge I can't just I can't perform under pressure like that (laughs) yeah well, and I, I've always thought that clumsiness or being bad at sports, whatever it is, I guess I never thought about like the genetic aspect or the idea that it could be an actual, um, an actual diagnosis. I just kind mm-hmm. of always thought you're just like, oh, you know, that kid's clumsy. Maybe they'll grow out of it. Maybe they won't. But no, that there's an, it's, has an actual medical term for it. Mm-hmm. Do you think, before we go to our first paper, I'm wondering what your opinion is. Do you think that being clumsy is correlated with being more intelligent? Like, or do you think, yeah, do you think that's vaguely true or not? Um, I don't think so from what I've seen. I think it just applies to a wide variety of people. And I mean, something that I learned in researching for this too is that like clumsiness is more prevalent in people with ADHD and with people with autism um so that does lead towards you know some really highly intelligent people but I don't know I feel like there's a big spectrum of that Mm -hmm. I think that's the perfect way to say it um yeah so to jump right in we read a great review paper by Walker et al that we'll link as we will all the papers that we always read every week but talked about the disorder known as dyspraxia which is a developmental coordination disorder is another word for it. And it's within the family of specific learning disabilities. And I thought this made great intuitive sense that it's similar to dyslexia, dyscalculia, dyscalculia, 
and dysgraphia. So <clears throat> whereas those are like disorders where you're bad at applied knowledge, like I said earlier, um, dyspraxia is like you're unaware of your body and how you're moving it, I guess, or you're yeah. unable to control it. Yeah. And it can express itself in a variety of ways. So you can like what we were just talking about, be bad at sports or generally just like run into things or like, you know, when every time you set a glass down, you accidentally put it off the edge. It can also affect your handwriting and your ability to learn and retain new information. Yeah. A lot of the, um, the symptoms or the, like the signs that they listed really connected with me, like bad handwriting for especially, um, or other issues like that. But, and also you said like often folks like on the autism spectrum or with ADHD and ADD also have this disorder. Yeah, so I'd be curious. So something that they talked about a bit with dyspraxia is that there's like a tendency kind of for children to grow out of it. And that doesn't always happen, um, mm-hmm. but they did like say that that's a pretty common thing that happens. So with you, cause you, you would say you're, you're a fairly clumsy kid and not good at sports. Do you feel like you grew out of that or has it just kind of been the same your entire life? I think it's been the same my entire life, but I think, um, and so in the second paper we read there, they did a questionnaire where they looked at whether people felt like they'd like grown out of it over time. Um, these were not individuals that had a dyspraxia diagnosis, but they did feel that they were very like clinically clumsy. Um, and they said, and I agree that mostly you just kind of learn to not set too much store in like physical activities and you just like develop yourself in other areas of your life. So you don't feel like you're in fifth grade PE all the time. That's good. I would, uh, that sounds like an actual version <laughs> of hell. Yeah. Well, the thing with dyspraxia is that there's no real like official list of things to get diagnosed with from what I found. I mean, you can go to a doctor and your doctor can say like, yeah, you're clumsy. And there's a few things that they can like look at for that, but there's not like a list of symptoms that you have to meet outside of kind of just being clumsy and what, what we were just talking about. Yeah. And apparently it's more often diagnosed in men, um, with a ratio of like four men to one woman with diagnosis rate. And you noted, and I agree that like, yeah, typically women are seeing as being less sporty, but maybe people pay more attention to boys who it's just like no athletic ability and feel, then feel the need to seek out a diagnosis. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking about with that ratio that they mentioned is like, is it actually more prevalent in men or like, do boys tend to be in more sports and things where it would be more obvious? Right. And they didn't make a distinction of that in this paper. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're definitely much more highly rewarded being good at like physical things as a boy. So, yeah. But in that second paper where they interviewed folks who said that they were very clumsy, they did a a developmental history questionnaire and looked at what areas of like their, in their adolescence, they felt they exceeded in versus areas they were like under average. So yeah, it's interesting. And this touches on what we talked about, like people who are clumsy often are very advanced in like their academic skills when they self-rate but then like delayed with their fine motor skills like juggling class and that's exactly what this paper was showing and like one of the other things that was also listed pretty highly for the majority of these individuals was language skills as well so not only things like reading or math though less so math than reading um (laughs) there was also those other language skills 
and yep. less so things like motor skills and then fine motor skills like drawing um and then it seemed like like taking care of yourself so things like washing your hair doing up buttons tying shoes was a little bit more evenly dispersed throughout these participants so mm -hmm. i'd be curious i know i say this like every paper but um with a bigger study how how those things would shift Mm -hmm. Well, you're so right. Um, and I'd love to know more about like what the motivation for this was because they only interviewed nine people, but they, they looked like they were pretty in-depth interviews. So that's good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they said that, you know, people might not have much as good a time driving cars or again, handwriting. Um, so super interesting. Yeah. Um, Another thing that they mentioned about this is that having DCD can lead to poor relationships with peers or poor functional outcomes at school. So, I mean, you were just talking about how, you know, boys are perceived more highly for being good at sports at a young age. So, or, and you were talking about like self-esteem and things like that. And that plays into this. So things like, like this can play into just developmental difficulties in school, regardless of how smart your kid actually is. Mm -hmm. Right. Because there's a lot of aspects to school and you want to be average at things to fit in. And it, I guess it becomes easier for people as you get older because it's not the same metrics of what makes you cool anymore. You can yeah. do lots of stuff. Thank God, honestly. <laughs> Thank God, yeah, seriously. <laughs> but I mean, outside of all these like general ways that this disorder plays itself out, Kira, you did find a really interesting study about the actual like MRIs and uh, looking into DCD in terms of the neurological side. Yeah, so they tried to see if they could find a specific biosignature of your brain functionality that like manifests when you have um, DCD and um, which is like similar to dyspraxia, like we said. And because that's that's um, that exists for a lot of other like neurologic um, disorders or like when your brain has like differing capabilities. But what this uh, paper found when they looked at nine fMRI studies, functional magnetic resonance imaging, uh, as well as structural MRI studies and um, others like that. So basically looking at brain scans using um, like electron spin in the water in your brain, looking at which areas are the lighting up the most. And what they found is that in this meta-analysis of all the studies that have been done, no two studies observed the same difference in brain functionality between people that had DCD, were diagnosed with DCD, but um, were exhibiting like different phenotypes based on the environments that they were in. Yeah. And I liked your con the conclusion that you had put in our notes here, which that that kind of indicates that different abilities are a feature, not a bug and develop organically due to genetics and life experiences. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it would seem more like a quote unquote, like disease or disorder if they all seemed like different or wrong in the same way. But I think it just shows that people are, uh, people are varied and, and diverse and um, it's impossible to have like a, a cerebral signature for DCD because or that we know of now, I guess. Something could come up down the line or maybe a more genetic basis, but um, it's just because not everybody is not everybody is good at sports and that's okay. Yeah. And it can also have to do with external factors. 
which kind mm-hmm. of gets into uh, one of our next papers that we are going to talk about. Yes. So you might be thinking from all this, like, well, if you're bad in PE class, why don't you just practice more and get good at it? That's certainly what my father thinks. Oof. Hi, dad. Uh, woof. Yeah. <laughs> um, my childhood trauma. Hey. <laughs> um, but really what, what the literature says, which might make you feel a bit better, is that practice does not really make perfect. So do you want to talk about the, the study or the findings or I can? Yeah. So deliberate practice appeared to be as important as a predictor of performance for adults as it is for children, at least like within sports. Um, and it appears to be as important of a predictor in team sports as individual sports. And um, overall, like deliberate practice does explain a certain percentage of it, it explains like 19% in variance in the performance of all these different studies that they looked like and 29% of the variance in performance in studies that use mixed samples. Um, but it was statistic, statistic, oh my God, statistically insignificant or non-significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This just made me feel, feel much better. Cause like, basically they're saying if you're like practicing to get good at an activity or a sport or something, um, that can like pay off and you can be better than other people at your level. Like if you're, um, I guess if you're a subpar athlete, because that like, then you're really honing in on like the skills that everybody can obtain. But like, if you're an elite athlete, like Olympic level and you're practicing, um, it doesn't matter if you practice like 12 hours a day or five hours a day, if you like, don't got it, then you don't got it. And like, you're not, not everybody can be an Olympic athlete. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. And, and also, like you said, it like, it can happen for adults and for kids. Um, like, it's just a good reminder, like if you're trying something, especially sport wise, and you're doing it over and over and over again, and not getting better, like it's not you. It's just how mm-hmm. it is. Right. It's not for you, but you can go out there and find what, what you're good at. And that's, that's the human experience. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that was a really interesting paper. Um, but I also wanted to acknowledge the fact that sometimes when you're bad at something, it might be because you're experiencing pressure from the outside and not just like an inability on the inside. So I, I think about this next nature, nature uh, paper that we're going to talk about like frequently. Um, I don't know if it like got you thinking as much as it got me thinking, Brina. Definitely. So this next paper is called why I tense up when you watch me inferior periodal inferior parietal cortex mediates an audience's influence on motor performance. And this is dorky of me, but the first thing it made me think of is like, so I played violin for over a decade. And when I would practice at home, I could get my pieces like a hundred percent spot on no mistakes. And then whenever I would like play in front of other people, I would always mess up. And it wasn't because I didn't know the notes or hadn't practiced enough. It was just because people looking at me and watching me and perceiving me stressed me out so much that I made mistakes. Yeah. I've said it before. Don't fucking perceive me. I'm not here for your, for your viewing. (laughs) Um, so the way that they, they measured this was fascinating because they had their participants perform a fine motor task. So they were trying to match this like isometric grip line. They gave the graphs in the paper, but um, so you like maintain 
a fine grip on an apparatus. And then while they're doing that, they're um, measuring once again, your brain activity and brain region activity with uh, functional MRI. And so with the, the output force, the MRI data, and also like emotional feedback afterwards, they were able to evaluate who experienced the greatest increase in subjective anxiety. Um, and also like the metrics that are portraying anxiety, like the grip force. Yeah. And they found, well, okay, correct me if I misunderstood the conclusion of this paper, but it seemed like they found kind of two different things. So with people that already had extreme anxiety, it showed that it basically increased their anxiety. Yeah. So people with who were like already primed to like know that they're anxious in these situations and who have anxiety, like their responses were elevated. Right. And also, so this isn't like the super obvious conclusion that you would reach but what they found is that people who were being like directly observed like obviously observed by like someone who's watching them physically they um also increased uh, an increase in subjective anxiety and all of those biomarkers and basically the region of the brain that they found to be increased in activity was the posterior uh, superior temporal sulcus the psts um so this is like the, so this is what's, what's cool about this paper. The, um, that part of the brain is related to social evaluation and like um, social interaction. So the, the left side, the, the left like superior temporal sulcus is more um, concerned with like mentalization or mind processes. So when you are being watched, you process, you filter your activity that you're doing through your right side of the brain and that it is has to do with like being being watched so you're not thinking about doing the activity you're you're thinking about being looked at while doing the activity does that make sense yeah definitely and I can't remember if it was this paper or a different paper we looked at but they talked about how uh, performing in front of other people in general causes your brain to go from this like automatic response that it has from repetition and just practice in general to uh, a more cognitive response where you're thinking a lot more about what you're doing and how that can actually cause more mistakes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You're like aware of how you're being perceived. Yeah. Um, Which is interesting just to think that your subconscious mind can do something better than your conscious mind can. Absolutely. It's, it's fascinating. And so I don't know if you feel this way, Brina, but what this made me think about is once again, they got to look at the gender differences with this, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that would be a fascinating paper to follow up with. Like when you think about being a woman, or at least the way I think about it, like a lot of it is, I think about the way I'm perceived. I think way I think about people finding me attractive, not finding me attractive, if they find me annoying, if they don't find me annoying. Um, and we've said it before, but I think men are not primed to think about that. And so I think as a result, I might feel social anxiety more because I want to look good. Yeah. You know? I think it could depend on the circumstance. And I also think that that could affect, uh, affect people in terms of race and depending on what situation they're in and how that could create increased anxiety simply from all of those stereotypes or societal expectations. Yeah. I watched a video just today that um, like black women especially feel like they can't get angry when they're upset and Mm -hmm. crying isn't really an acceptable reaction either. So it's like 
how do you respond to to conflict and struggle when like you're aware that society will like judge you for how you act and yeah yeah I'd be curious to take kind of some of what they're talking about here with the PSTS and apply it to scenarios like that and see how that area of the brain reacts in those scenarios absolutely um and yeah part of your brain basically shuts off when you're being observed and that's why <laughs> you might freak out when you have to demonstrate something for someone <laughs> yeah and I guess that gets us into our last paper because this is kind of the conclusion that they drew with this paper um, but our last one's a little bit more fun a little more lighthearted. it's called anxiety and performance in sex sport and stage basically they were identifying a common ground between these three things and one of the main things that did that was what we were just talking about with just kind of being on autopilot in all of those I would have never thought of putting these three things together because basically they talked about how each of these fields, sport, sex, and stage, um, stage being like anything performative in front of people that's not sports, could benefit by using the ideas and strategies of the other. And I thought sex is an interesting thing to put in here because I feel like you don't you're not necessarily super strategic about sex and things like that, but it did play into um, a lot of what they looked like in terms of reflective factors and boundary conditions and kind of what that out outcome looks like in these three different things. Not to go on a tangent, but yeah, I think the sex thing makes perfect sense. And, and you don't have straight sex as often as I do, I might <laughs> argue. Um, yeah, I would say that's true, yeah. But I feel like everyone who, all women who engage in like straight sex know that like sometimes you're in it for you and sometimes you're in it like for the performance of it and I think that comes from porn like you know women are always the subject of porn videos yeah um, that's very true so there are times when it's more of a sport and times where it's more of a performance and and that's okay I guess <laughs> yeah I, I'm curious so one of the things they talked about in this paper is like if your expectations for the performance are high um, outcomes may not be ideal and yeah when you're talking about sex I, I imagine if your partner or if you are expecting maybe more of like what's shown in porn and then that doesn't happen you might be more disappointed with the sex than you would be had you not gone into it with those expectations which could get us all into like porn culture and all of that but that's a whole separate mm -hmm. that is the whole separate episode um, but yeah and like with the stage like if you think for me, like when I have presentations, if I try to think about what I'm going to say too much, I, I like clam up totally. Same. I always wonder how people have their TED talks memorized from beginning to end, because that would, I would do so much worse if I had to prepare like that much or know word for word what I was going to say without making any mistakes. Oh, absolutely. I feel like I'm the kind of gal that just comes up with like a new speech on the spot every time because like memorizing things freaks me the fuck out for sure. I get that. That's why I always did bad in Spanish class with speaking presentations because I didn't want to just memorize it, but then I wouldn't be able to speak from memory either. But <laughs> Right, because it's Spanish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's like a whole other. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> it's like having a gay sex for the first time <laughs> you're like I can't even go through the motions what the hell are we doing yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, 
But yeah, overall, this paper just kind of looked at the common ground that all of these things were automatic responses where anxiety, cognitive, uh, anxiety and cognitive dysfunction um, would lead to more deliberate thinking and interfere with performance. Mm -hmm. And it was a really interesting conclusion that they drew. And they talked about how, like with sports, you're more focused on like the visual and spatial spatial motor responses and like how you train for that and how that could play into like other aspects of your life I thought it was a really interesting paper overall I think that was a great one uh that you read and a great one to end with and you know for all those kids playing golf and in fifth grade just just basically practice if you don't want to be quite so embarrassed it's good to you know try hard at things but also just just chill out because soon you can join orchestra (laughs) (laughs) you can join the rest of us sitting on the couch watching the olympic trials as people run 100 meters in under 10 seconds and be like yeah you're so good at that Uh, exactly i'm so excited so we we do have an olympic episode planned for this summer right yes we do that will be coming out in july once the olympics start actually airing can't wait but i mean before then what are we talking about next week kara so I think we're going to be talking about this, the, the sperm donor black market um, <laughs> and I guess more about the science behind sperm donors uh, and organ donations of other kinds. So be sure to tune in next week. I think that's going to be the last episode of our current quote unquote season. So yeah. stay tuned. We've been doing this for like six months now. So we're going to take a quick little break in the summer and then we'll come back with season two. Yeah. But next week we'll wrap it all up talking about black market sperm and then rest on our laurels yeah (laughs) it'll be right in time for like fourth of july you know fitting hell yeah well thank you so much everyone for listening 